Hello and thank you for tuning in to the first episode of Alternative Frequencies, a new bilingual podcast brought to you by the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies. My name is Nadim Elkak and I am a researcher at LCPS. For listeners who don't know us yet, we are a Beirut-based, independent and non-profit research organization, generally focused on issues related to political representation, economic reform and social justice, just to name a few topics. The motivation to start this podcast came after the start of the Lebanese uprising last October. We noticed that the protests and the economic crisis were uh, sparking a new interest, especially among the youth, in understanding the factors that got us here and how we can move forward at a time when the future looks bleak. As a center which has been working on policy change for over 30 years, we wanted a new platform to communicate with the public and share the insights of experts, scholars and activists on a range of pressing questions. In this podcast, we'll be addressing a breadth of topics, from governance issues related to the work of parliament and government, to elections, economic reform, protests, the youth, and sustainable development. All right, with all that said, let's get started with our first episode, where I have the pleasure of hosting the very own director of LCPS, Dr. Sami Atallah. Hi, Sami. How are you? Hi, Nadim. Thank you so much uh, for launching the LCPS podcast. I'm really excited about this. Great. So can you start by telling us a bit about yourself and what you've been working on recently? So I've been the director of LCPS since uh, 2011, and I'm actually very happy to see how LCPS has emerged in the last uh, decade. Uh, We've been working on a series of issues that I think are very important, particularly the political economy of development, issues related to elections, clientelism, vote buying, as well as job creation and export promotion in the manufacturing sector. Now, more recently, I think, in light of the crisis that we're facing, LCPS is embarking on three major components uh, to look into. One is the economic reforms, including the economic and financial implosion that we're currently experiencing. Two, we're looking at the political mobilization that started in October 2019 and how this is actually evolving. And three, and more recently, is the impact of the pandemic on both the political mobilization as well as the economic um, implosion that's actually happening currently. Yeah, and I guess those three topics are really what have been the focus of the public's attention and the world really uh, in Lebanon and surrounding all of these main topics. But our topic for today is Lebanon's parliament. So Mm -hmm. let's get into it. Um, We know that over the past year, as you've said, Lebanon has descended into overlapping financial and economic crises. Um, Living conditions today are far worse than they were when people initially took to the streets in October, and the country is in dire need of structural reforms. So when we say structural reforms, I guess what we mean really is changes that go beyond the day-to-day of policymaking, and uh, changes that completely restructure the manner by which the state and its institutions have been operating. So we're talking taxes and redistribution mechanisms, accountability and transparency, public service delivery, judicial independence, the electricity sector, and so on. So while a new government was formed in January and tasked to undertake these reforms, we know that a lot of those real changes require parliament to pass or amend a number of laws. So could you start by briefly explaining to us what is the parliament for and what are its general responsibilities towards citizens? Sure. Thank you, Nadine, for this introduction, because I really think 
um, we underappreciate the role of parliament in our society and in our political system. Lebanon is a parliamentary democracy, and parliament is the major political institution to legislate laws, to hold the government accountable, and to elect the president and nominate the prime minister, among other things. So this parliament and its authority and constitutional power is actually essential to how the political system is actually evolving. Now, for this to work, actually, there must be serious incentives for parliamentarians to perform these roles. And that's why a couple of years ago, we decided to embark and look very closely at how this political institution actually works or how it doesn't work and look at members as well, i.e. the members of parliament. So on that basis, we launched this study and we published a book on it with my colleague Naila Jaja. And I'll be very happy to share some of the results. I think it's very pertinent today in our discussion because we really need to have a very effective and powerful role for parliament in today's crisis. Yeah, of course. And although the this book was released two years ago, I think it's as pertinent as, is, as it's ever been really. So we'll get into these findings. But before we move to that, I wanted to ask you, um, let's suppose hypothetically that you had complete control over the decisions of parliament. How would you manage this crisis today? What are the kinds of measures that this parliament should be undertaking considering the responsibilities and the authorities that the parliament has and that you've outlined? Sure. Very good question. The first thing actually I'll do is open the parliament to be debating and discussing with its fellow members as well as the public on how we actually gonna solve this financial and political crises that are actually interrelated. For example, in October when the whole um, protests erupted, one of the things that people were demanding is accountability and the independence of the judiciary. And I feel that the first thing that the parliament should be doing is pass this draft law that has been sitting on the shelves of parliamentarians for several years now. Unfortunately, our parliamentarians keep on talking about they want to fight corruption, they want to pass this law, but they are so far inept at doing so. But let me go back to your question. The other thing that I would do, given that we also have, in addition to the political crisis, we have an economic crisis, is that in a country that's actually financially imploding, the first thing that the parliament should be doing or should have done is impose a capital control law. It's like having a patient bleeding in the operation room and parliamentarians are just looking at that patient or maybe benefiting from, the, from this patient who's bleeding. So it's really, to me, not only unacceptable, but it's criminal, in fact, for the parliamentarians not to be taking, for example, this specific measure and pass it. But other things I would say. I would also look into the debt restructuring because that's another major overhang on the whole economy, this whole issue of debt that we have accumulated over the years. I would, if I were in a position of power, launch a major audit of all the government institutions, including the central bank, of how the money was spent or misspent. So these are just few of the things that I would do. Uh, and if I may, I would also add a procurement law, for example, because we know 
many of the contracts that the government has contracted to the private sector, based on anecdotal evidence, were not very well managed, to say the least. Then we need a procurement law, we need to create a competitive process, we need to have a transparent process where companies actually submit their bids and win based on merit. And I would probably conclude, just so not to add too much, you know, um, people are suffering and there'll be a huge cost going to be imposed on Lebanese. I would take serious measures on the social side. For instance, I would adopt a universal healthcare to make sure that all the Lebanese are protected. I would probably give them social safety nets as well. And I would look very hard to find funding for these. These are just very few, yeah. just to kickstart our conversation. Yeah, of course. And I mean, capital control laws, debt restructuring, audits and procurement laws. I mean, we're at a point where uh, waiting and not acting is worse than not having an optimal debt restructuring plan. And that's the magnitude of the crisis today. Um, so um, before we go into the book that uh, you and Naila Jaja have edited on the role of parliament, um, I wanted to ask you, how would you assess the parliament's performance in responding to the crisis? You just discussed some of the things that you think should be a priority on the parliament's agenda. Um, looking at how the parliament has performed from October until today, what do you make of it? I think the performance of the parliament since October has been dismal. If we just look at the numbers, I think they had 100 or more than 100 laws proposed to be debated. Only 15 of which are actually real reforms. And I think out of the 15, only six passed. But let's just put the numbers aside. Let's just take, for example, the bank secrecy law, which was passed. It was submitted to parliament and during the session, they decided to remove a key phrase or article in that draft law, which really diluted or undermined the very law that is supposed to fight corruption. So here we, again, we find political parties on TV very much advocating fighting corruption. But when it comes to the real issue of passing the law to fight it, they actually pull, pack, pull the plug on it. I find this horrific. And we saw how they did that. They prevented the judiciary from, in fact, invoking the bank secrecy law. And they gave the power to an anti-corruption council that has not yet been created, for example. Another thing that they, and more serious one, I feel, is that while the government has proposed an agenda or financial and economic reforms with Lazar Company, they have actually undermined this by adopting and legitimizing the bank's plan, the association of banks plan through the committee, the budget committee. They argue that they're actually doing a service for the country. They argue that in fact, their estimation of the losses, which is lower than the government's is better. But in fact, if you speak to any financial expert, they'll tell you they've adopted some accounting gimmicks to actually lower the financial losses. Now, people will say, oh, that's a great thing to lower the losses. Well, you know what? No, it's not because they're lowering it for the purpose. They're lowering it to protect the banks. They're lowering it and they're pretending to be actually um, 
want to save depositors money, but in fact, they're actually going to be doing the opposite. So I feel that the role of the parliament here and the role of the committee has actually prevented and halted Lebanon's actually um, negotiation with the IMF, which means our reforms are, have been delayed, and I think the people will be suffering as a result of this. Yeah, I mean, we've been seeing how the parliament has been managing this crisis, and it's obviously been clear that there haven't been any real structural changes at a time when you would expect those changes to be as urgent as they've ever been. Um, and I think that's a good segue to our uh, discussion about the book on the previous parliament's performance. So the parliament um, that was in power from 2009 till to 2017. Um, so although it's not today's parliament, I think a lot of the findings in that book are still very much relevant today. And they can give us more like concrete data on this uh, uh, lackluster performance of the parliament. So could you start by giving us um, a very quick summary of like what were the main research questions behind this project? What was the main motivation to look at? And what are some general findings in it before we go into more of the details? Sure. The idea was we wanted to unpack this very institution that we think is fundamental for the country, which is the parliament. In fact, we wanted to monitor the institution that's actually supposed to regulate and monitor the government. Um, and, you know, many Lebanese might say, and observe, observers as well, that, hey, the parliament doesn't work, you know, it's not supposed to work. But really, we wanted to go into the nitty-gritty detail and understand its functions. So what we did, in fact, we collected data on all the laws that it passed. We reviewed these laws. We interviewed parliamentarians. Only 65 out of the 128 MPs actually accepted to see us. We designed a questionnaire for them and we had asked them a series of questions on their policy positions, to their participation, to their general knowledge. And we also actually analyzed the deliberations of the parliaments or the parliamentary sessions to actually see what the parliamentarians actually talk about. So that allowed us to collect a lot of data on the parliament as an institution and on the parliamentarians who actually occupy the seats in parliament to see how they actually operate. Now, uh, one of the key um, sort of um, findings, I would say, is that one of the things we did is we asked parliamentarians, what do you think are the priorities of the people? And meanwhile, we asked the people through a survey, what are your priorities? And when we actually matched those two, we found out that actually the parliamentarians are not in sync with people's demands. For example, people wanted largely socioeconomic issues like unemployment, rise of prices or inflation, education were a problem, health, electricity and water were very much struggling to make ends meet on these issues. When we asked the parliamentarians, they actually thought people's concerns were the electoral law, fighting corruption, sectarianism. So you would see that they don't have their finger on the pulse of the citizens and their needs. So, uh, so that was important to actually quantify that and actually see that. So when we looked at the laws, for example, uh, out of the 352 laws that the parliament passed, only 31 that is just barely 9% uh, 
actually addresses people's concerns. So only 9%. And when, when we actually um, looked at their deliberations, and, well, you know what they talk about? Tell you what they talk about. They talk about Israel and the fear of Israel attacking. They talk about security issues. They talk about crimes. They talk about terrorism. These are the top issues that are recurrent in the discussions. But when it comes to issues related to unemployment, poverty, inflation, you know, these are like way at the bottom of the 20 or the 25th, if you want to rank these uh, issues that were actually raised. So just to tell you that those guys are not in sync and don't even bother, except, don't even bother to discuss people's concerns, except when the parliamentary session is televised. When it's televised, the show begins. They start talking about unemployment. They start talking about poverty. They start talking about, you know, issues that actually pertain to people's interests. It's a show. Unfortunately, it becomes a show. Yeah, and I think that's uh, really telling because it's not like those uh, parliamentarians don't live in Lebanon or aren't aware that the people are struggling with these issues. It's just that within the walls of parliament, their priorities lie lie elsewhere. And I think we'll get more into that uh, later on. Um, So you were saying that um, there's a lack of discrepancy in terms of priorities and even lack of knowledge of what people are concerned with. Uh, You talked a bit about the deliberations. So what else uh, in the study that you've conducted, what other findings could you share with us? Yeah, I mean, speaking of knowledge, I mean, when we ask them about um, what's unemployment rate, you'll be surprised that only one third of the MPs knew what unemployment rate in the country. And that after giving them a range, a 10% range, back then when we conducted it, we said anyone who gets the answer between 15 to 25% will get the correct answer. And even then, just a third knew what the answer is. For poverty, it was even worse. It was like barely a quarter knew what poverty rate in the country. When we ask about public debt to GDP, which you would think that these parliamentarians should know, given that everything financial and everything related to the budget should come through the parliament. Well, you know what? Only 8% knew what public debt to GDP is. So all of this to tell you that these people don't even know people's needs and they probably don't care. And we're going to come to that. And even when we looked at the, for example, one of the things that the parliamentarians should do is hold government accountable. They don't hold or they didn't hold enough oversight sessions. They didn't follow on government's role in passing the laws that, uh, for example, they're supposed to pass implementation decrees. They never followed up on that. But then actually the bottom line is that many MPs don't even participate. So when we actually looked at who goes to parliament, who attends and who participates. And there's a huge discrepancy here. And in fact, only a very few, maybe around 10 to 12 out of the 128 actually are very active in attending and participating. And one of the most um, maybe shocking findings is that party heads, political party heads, rarely attend parliamentary sessions. So we're talking the political leaders of traditional parties. So the absolutely the the names that we all know about. Exactly. Yeah. So when, for example, when President Aoun, before he became president, as the head of the FPM, or Walid Jumblat, or 
Saad al-Hadiri or um, Slaiman Fanji, you would see these people actually don't come to parliament as often as others. And in fact, it tells you something about where the political bargaining is taking place. It's not taking place in parliament, right? It's behind closed doors. It's behind closed doors. It's precisely the point. And that's what one of the major problems here. And I remember, for example, in the electoral law that was passed, you have a call maybe over eight years, the whole committee working on electoral law, but it was cooked up, you know, one evening over dinner and was submitted to parliament the next morning and it was voted on. And I bet you many parliamentarians didn't even read the law. So that's what, one of the shocking. But when we ask parliamentarians through, the, through our interviews, we'd like, how do you spend your time, really, your public lifetime? And we give them obviously five options, right? Do you let, how much of your time you spend legislation, legislating, oversight, overseeing the government, you know, working with your party, working with other parties, uh, being on the media, and so forth. Well, only 30% of the time, according to the MPs themselves, is spent on legislating and overseeing the role of the government. So clearly we have parliamentarians that they don't see that the main role is actually precisely that, to legislate and oversee the government in its um, performance. This lack, this discrepancy that you're talking about between MPs not only not seeing eye to eye with citizens, but also uh, seemingly not even knowing what are the responsibilities that are granted to them uh, as members of parliament. Um, how do you make sense of parliamentarians really relinquishing those authorities that they are supposed, that people have technically entrusted them with by electing them uh, into parliament? I think one of the key um, conclusions is that it's not that the parliament doesn't have power. In fact, it does. It has been empowered in the Ta'if agreement. In fact, what we see is that the parliamentarians have relinquished their own power because they probably realize that they have other interests at play and serving the people is not one of them. And we see that through the fact that when we looked at these political parties and when we interviewed these MPs from the same political party, and we asked them about their policy positions on a number of issues, decentralization, electoral law, um, education, electricity, um, healthcare, and you name it. Often we find that many MPs from the same political bloc hold divergent views on these issues. And in fact, when we ask them about what their party position is, what their official party position, some would say, or even many would say, we don't know, or it's exactly like his or her opinion, you know. But when we compare it across, we see that these MPs, as a block, don't hold a view, don't probably care to hold a view, because they know, in fact, that the political parties is just a cover. The political parties here are not here to position themselves and debate policy positions or programs that serve the people. They get elected, and we can discuss this, the electoral law through various measures from gerrymandering to clientelism and vote buying, which they feel they don't need to serve 
people's interests once they actually win the election because they feel like their job is to provide people with maybe jobs here or give them food vouchers there, but not actually to put policies that actually serve the larger citizen. And that's one of the major things that have undermined the whole role of the parliament and the political parties to hold these concrete legislations that have visions that actually serve uh, people's interests. So exactly on that point, how do you explain that political parties have moved so far away from programs and from like policy related issues? Um, is it something inherent in like the systemic nature of the Lebanese system or its structure? Um, how do you explain this lack of uh, attention and time being given to what should be the priorities of politicians, really? You know, uh, Nadim, I was also want to throw that, speaking of the political system, um, some people and a lot of people here feel that the parliament with its confessional quotas, um, these people who are, for example, MPs from a certain confession, they tend or should serve their constituency. You know, when we looked at this, we realized also that even MPs from the same confession do not hold the same policy positions on a number of issues. That tells you again that our system, neither political parties are actually functioning as political parties, neither the confessional systems actually able to produce parliamentarians with the same set of visions. So in fact, we left off with the political institutions and few leaders who control this parliament, they set up lists with parliamentarians in it, and they actually push an agenda that actually serves the very few people. So this institution that's supposed to be inclusive becomes very exclusive and not exclusive by confessions or not exclusive by who's part of the party or not. It's very exclusive to the very few political elite and their cronies and to serve their ends rather than the larger citizen. While doing so, they pretend and project that, in fact, their party is protecting this community or that community, where, in fact, they're doing probably the opposite and undermining people's interests and concerns. Um, going back to the issue of like socioeconomic demands that citizens had and um, um, MPs not actually discussing these issues in parliament, um, how, why do you think that socioeconomic issues don't end up being such a main topic of concern inside the walls of parliament? Are these uh, MPs or are these political parties uh, relying on other vehicles or mechanisms to meet those citizens' needs? Um, is there any way for socioeconomic concerns to come back to the realm of the state? And this is what exactly what we need to do, is we want to have uh, and produce policies and laws that actually serve the larger citizen, which is inclusive and participatory, rather than being exclusive, rather than being targeted to individuals or families, that often is the case as political parties and political heads provide them through clientelistic networks. That clientelistic network, in fact, has, I would argue, while it benefited or provided direct benefit 
but I would also argue short-term benefit to the people. It actually came at the expense of serious sustainable developmental agenda that would serve the larger citizen. And in fact, I think we're paying the price of this right now where we realize that now the country is bankrupt, political parties are actually bankrupt in how to deal with the crisis, where people are paying the price for this, and we're left off needing to borrow and calling the IMF to salvage the country. So this, we need to learn of what went wrong. We need to learn how the decision-making process has been hijacked by very few people at the expense of the larger public good. So as long as this political class remains the same, do you see any potential for any changes or reforms to take place? Or are, is calling for reforms uh, um, ineffective at this point and the focus should lay elsewhere? What do you make of this debate of change from the inside versus the outside of the system? Um, is it a binary, really? Sure. Look, there are certain measures that we can do or adopt to tweak the effectiveness of the parliament. Um, definitely, for instance, uh, we definitely need to have more clarity and improve how the office of the speaker puts the agenda and how the draft laws are actually submitted to the committees. You know, there must be deadlines and what have you. We could definitely improve the working of the committees, make them more transparent, more inclusive, invite different stakeholders to be involved and so forth. But you know what? At the end of the day, these are small, tiny tweaks in light of the bigger and major crisis that we're, we're facing. We're no longer in 2018 or 2016, for that matter, where we could have improved how these political institutions. Now, after the October Revolution, and now, which is now concurrent with the financial implosion, Lebanon can no longer afford to go back to how things were. And I think it's going to take a while for this to sink. I think political parties are still stuck in their old way of doing business. And that's why we're in fact, we see no reforms taking place. In fact, Lebanon needs a major overhaul of the political system. I would argue that on three levels. One, we definitely need new political parties that have actually programmatic platforms and can serve citizens' needs. We've seen the programs of these parties. They're very shallow. They're very weak. In fact, no one even knew that there was an implosion coming when you look at the programs of 2018. They were so far off from what we see right now. Two, we need an electoral law. We need an electoral law because it's so important how these Candidates are actually elected into parliament. How the votes are counted. But also once they are counted and once they win, we want to make sure that actually they have the incentive to represent people's concerns and need. Currently, what when we have, even when we have a PR, a proportional representation law, which I think is a good step forward, but yet parliamentarians don't feel that the role is or they've been acting upon to produce laws that actually serve citizens. And this missing link is catastrophic because only when you have money to buy the votes and so forth and buy people's sort of uh, you know, services and so forth is good. 
And as I say, short term, you know, right now we need a whole different structure. And I would say the third um, issue is actually lies in the political system. Currently, our the political system does not allow for accountability to take place. I mean, look, in the last nine months, everyone wants to fight corruption and not one single person was actually questioned or investigated seriously or put in prison for that matter. The question is, without accountability, we cannot move forward. And in fact, if we look at the last 30 years, just because we don't want to even go back to the pre-Civil War, the political system has oscillated between collusion of the political parties when they are in agreement or paralysis when they don't agree. But we never had something in between where actually we have a system that holds people accountable. Now, this is going to be a challenge given the current confessional system that we obviously want to deal with and address and undo. What we need right now is political imagination whereby we think of a system that provides the and represents the interests of the various groups, but I would argue not only confessional. I think we have, Lebanon is way more complex than to reduce it to a confessional cleavage. We've got gender issue, that I think is very important. We have socioeconomic one, we have regional one. So we need to think much more creatively in representing these different segments of society rather than just reduce it to one angle or cleavage, which is a confessional one, and instill in this an accountability mechanism so actually we can produce policies and, and legislations that actually serve people's demands and interests. Of course, yeah, I think recognizing this multiplicity of identities and how they're all interrelated and they intersect is essential and must be incorporated to any kind of uh, policy making going forward. And from what I understand from your answer, really looking at the process of change shouldn't be a matter of black and white or change from the inside or the outside. As you've outplayed, there's a lot of reforms that we can still try to push for, even with the same political class currently in there. But at the end of the day, and as you've outlined, a lot of their interests and the incentive structures that govern their decisions lay far away from the interests of the people. So we have to keep all of these things in mind when we think about uh, structural reforms, political change and whatnot going forward. All right. I think this is it for today and we've run out of time, but it was great talking to you, Sami. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I really am very happy that we've launched this because I really think what we try to achieve uh, from this podcast is to actually relay, disseminate our policy knowledge into a conversational mode. So thank you so much, uh, Nadine, for this occasion. Thank you. Um, and in all cases, I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in and taking the time to listen to us. If you enjoyed this discussion or you want to share your thoughts with us, you can reach us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is at LCPS Lebanon. We'll be back very soon with new episodes.